there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of Tea for C. If you're someone who loves archaeology or history or art and you can't get enough of museums, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest has her PhD in history and is the lead curator at the brand new International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. And here's a little bit of a spoiler alert. She didn't think she was going to end up doing this when she was in college. But before I introduce you to Dr. Alexis Albion, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you a sneak peek at the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. And it is so easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number 4 coffee.org and sign up. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Dr. Alexis Albion, the lead curator at the brand new International Spy Museum, which just opened its doors in May 2019. Dr. Albion was a professional staff member on the 9-11 Commission, also known as the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States. It was established in November 2002, and I'm going to read here, to prepare a full and complete account of the circumstances surrounding the September 11th attacks, including preparedness for and the immediate response to those attacks. She went on to become the director for policy of the 9-11 Public Discourse Project and a strategist at the U.S. State Department. Eventually, she worked as an assistant to the president and speechwriter for the president of the World Bank. By the way, if you want to learn more about how to become a museum curator, please check out the show notes for this episode to see if our Espresso Shots interview has already been released. Dr. Albion, Alexis, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated on your English breakfast tea and ready to go? Yes, I think I am. Fantastic. So I thought maybe we could start our caffeinated chat here today with an overview of what my wonderful intern Hannah and I experienced about an hour or so ago that visitors to this museum will find when they come here and how it's different from the first spy museum and is located about a mile or so from where we are now. So, I mean, one of the great advantages about already having had a museum that had been open for over 10 years when you're developing the new iteration of that is that you've got lots and lots and lots of visitor feedback. We went through all of that from TripAdvisor reviews to things that people had said over the years. And we had a pretty good idea of what people liked and what people weren't so keen on, what people wanted to see more of or less of. So that was a great starting point to have. We knew just from our own point of view that we wanted to make it more international. We looked at visitorship to Washington, D.C. and how it had changed over the years and the different types of audiences. We saw a lot more Chinese visitors coming, for example. And so we knew we wanted to have more stories about China. 
And it made sense to have more stories about China because a lot had happened since the museum had first opened in 2002 in the world of intelligence. China was much more of an actor in that way. So we took into consideration lots of different factors like that. We wanted it more international. We wanted to look at intelligence over a broader sweep of history. The old museum was pretty focused on World War II and the Cold War. And the museum opened in 2002. That meant it had been being developed in 99, 2000. The old museum had kind of 9-11 tacked on to the end because it had happened during development. But again, look at what's happened since then. We needed to address more of the more contemporary issues that were going on in intelligence. Things were changing a lot and we wanted to have the flexibility to address new issues. So lots of these considerations, we had lots and lots of brainstorming sessions about this, brought in lots of professionals and had long sessions talking about all the things we wanted to do. In the old museum, we had kind of divided our exhibits into two sections. There was one that looked a lot at the tools, the gadgets, but didn't have very many stories. And then in the next section, we had all the stories, history, but not a lot of gadgets and artifacts. We knew we wanted to combine those. We wanted to have the stories with the tools, with the gadgets. We thought we probably wanted to maybe look at fewer stories in more depth. We needed to look at all the different styles of learning. That had been done in the old museum, but we really wanted to take that to a new level of some people love reading labels, some people like watching films, some people like doing interactives, of combining all those different ways of learning in the new museum. And we also wanted to appeal to a broader audience We'd always had a huge number of visitors of all different ages. And then one of the things you get in Washington, D.C. is, of course, you get people from different countries, but you get intelligence professionals. You can't take for granted that people don't know this material. So we have to cater to people who know nothing about intelligence, to people who are actually in the intelligence field as well. So it's a huge challenge. You really have to think about all these different audiences. And I wasn't trained as a museum professional, so I really hadn't been thinking about the ways museums have changed over the years. And I learned a lot when I started working here. And one thing that was really interesting to me to think about was the fact that when I was a kid, we went to museums to learn things. That's what you did. You were actually learning information that you couldn't get elsewhere. Well, that isn't true anymore. You can sit at home in your bedroom and never get dressed and learn about all kinds of stuff. So why do people go to museums? It's not necessarily to learn things. It's often to experience things. Now, artifacts are a unique thing. You can sit at home and you can look at an image of the Enigma machine. But I think seeing it in front of you is a different kind of experience. And people do go to museums to see the actual objects, to see artifacts. So that's an important element of it. But they want to experience something. They want to have an experience where they can't get anywhere else. So that was just interesting to me to think about museums in a different way. It's not just about, well, let's tell you the story of the Enigma machine. Well, you can buy books about that. You can read it on the internet. You can watch a movie. There's many, many different ways. In fact, I'm surprised if anybody comes to a museum and doesn't know the story of Enigma. So how are we going to do that story? How are we going to do that story in a compelling way? Well, you can see the artifacts. That's certainly a huge draw. We have Enigma machines. We have Enigma rotors. We're telling you the story. We devised a film where you can hear from the 
nephew of Alan Turing telling you about his uncle and how he helped break the code. I think those are all unique things. So it is a huge challenge, I think, today to build a museum, to offer exhibits that cater toward the kinds of audiences you have in an international capital like Washington, D.C., and especially given all the resources for getting information that we have today. I would imagine, Alexis, that it is a fairly unique experience for a museum curator to get the opportunity to build an entire museum from soup to nuts, as opposed to a couple of exhibits. How did you go about conceptualizing all of the things that you wanted to have? I would imagine you're thinking about the storytelling arc and you're thinking about the artifacts and you're thinking about the acquisition of those artifacts. Could you kind of walk us through all of the moving pieces that you had to deal with? Yes, I'll try. I mean, first of all, I would say, yes, it's a very unique experience and I'm a very, very lucky person, I would say. And I mean, it's certainly what attracted me to this. How do you do it? Well, you don't do it alone. I'll tell you that. There are lots and lots and lots of people involved in that. That's one thing. And certainly I was not working alone. My manager and I worked together very closely, just basically with the conceptualization of things. And then obviously brought in lots of other people from her staff and also contractors to work on different elements. What were some of those professions that came that right. you brought so, I mean, in. One of my colleagues basically was in charge of the interactives, which is a big element. And especially nowadays, people want to come in and be interactive and press buttons and things. And we developed a whole interactive mission that runs through the museum, which is RFID enabled. And she was in charge of developing that. What is Obviously, RFID? I'm sorry, sorry. That is radio frequency identification, which means that basically you have a badge that you carry, which does interact radio frequency with our different interactives and is scoring you and keeping that information and processing it and all kinds of unbelievable happen because of that. And she worked very much with our interactive developers on doing that. I mean, I couldn't handle everything, obviously. So it's about working with people who are very, very capable and you can trust and say, you go off and do that and you do that and you write that. And I trust that you really know your stuff on this so that I don't have to check that this is accurate. So, I mean, we were doing the content. Basically, what I was doing was in charge of the content of the museum, but we had a design firm working on design. We have fabricators, we have filmmakers, we have all kinds of different elements, people doing IT and installation and all that. So it, it is a huge effort. And this is apart from obviously building the entire building, which is a whole other project. Early on, we came up with a general concept that we wanted to lay the museum and our exhibits out differently than we had in the other museum that we wanted to look at the whole cycle of intelligence to a large extent in the old museum. We'd really focused on espionage, which is human intelligence gathering, but that's just one aspect of what intelligence agencies do. We knew we wanted to get more into science and technology, and we knew that we wanted to look at analysis, which is a large part of what intelligence agencies do and which we hadn't covered at all in the old museum. So we laid that out pretty early on, what our sort of big galleries were going to be. Obviously, there are lots of hurdles of briefing these things to other people. We have a board, we have a founder, we have a funder. All these things, obviously, you do have to get these things approved. And other people have other ideas as well. And sometimes they're good ideas and sometimes they're not. So I'd say we'd spend about 
two years, developing that concept plan and really fleshing it out as fully as we could. At the same time, you are thinking about stories and artifacts. We were very lucky to get a very, very large donation of artifacts from a collector who'd been intimately involved with the old museum, who was on our board and had helped us get artifacts for the old museum and then decided having seen what we were going to do with the new museum and our concept and our building, that he would donate his entire collection to us, which was a huge benefit, obviously, in that also drove our story choice. You know, we're going to do the story of the assassination of Leon Trotsky when you've just been given the acts that murdered Trotsky. So that definitely helped us develop stories. And we used to have a, we called it our war room. And around the walls, I had these matrices of the different exhibits and One axis was different time periods and one axis was different geographical places. And we were sort of trying to fill in, what can we do that's a story from early modern era in South America or something like that? Obviously, we weren't able to fill in all those, but we wanted to get a general sense of how we were doing on covering different areas of the world, covering different periods. We wanted to focus more on women. We wanted to focus more on minorities. We had a whole list of things we wanted to do differently. And it was good to keep that in mind as we were developing things. Could you take us into a typical day for you now that the museum is up and running? What do you do, Alexis, on any given day? Yes, it's not really a typical day. Well, right now we're still in this position where the museum is open and fairly new and we're still trying to figure out the kinks. There are still things that need to be worked on and fixed. Most of our visitors won't notice that. We're looking at our visitor flow and seeing where the crunch points are and what we can do to relieve that. We're moving some things around. There are exhibits that we want to enhance, make a little better. We can tell where our visitors' energy sort of declines and what can we do to lift that energy. There are great things in the museum which we feel just aren't getting the attention that we wish they would. (laughs) What can we do to point our visitors? That's our fault, not our design or whatever isn't done in the right way so that people are really recognizing that this is a great artifact or something like that. It should have more attention. So we're still working on a lot of that. We're still getting some press interest (laughs) and people, VIPs, people who want to talk to and talk about the museum and give tours to. I feel like we're still finishing up in many ways. In the next six months or so, hopefully we're going to start transitioning. And this is me, obviously. We have other colleagues who are working on other things and developing educational resources and working with schools and all kinds of things. But for myself, moving forward, I think we're going to start transitioning to thinking about the future a little bit. We do have space for temporary exhibits, for example, and we're going to have to start thinking about that fairly soon because that takes a while to develop. Can you give us an example, Alexis, of where specifically you have used your PhD in international history Mm. to help develop a particular part of the museum? Right. That's a tough one. (laughs) My dissertation, which I wrote, as I said, on U.S.-British intelligence relations in the 1960s. So what I was looking at very much in that dissertation was the perception, sort of social perception 
of intelligence. So I was very interested in how audiences in Britain and the UK were actually perceived their intelligence services. It was a time in the 1960s when people were actually finding out more than ever before about what their intelligence services were doing, often through spy scandals. So I was interested in that interaction between the public and the intelligence services and in a certain amount about that interaction between fact and fiction. I did look at popular culture, of course, and I think that's always been an interest of mine. The museum did a temporary exhibit a number of years ago, which was called Exquisitely Evil. It was actually about James Bond villains. It was a wonderful exhibit. And I actually brought in as a guest curator for that because I do have a great interest in James Bond. Who it, doesn't? Who doesn't? Yes. One of the things that that exhibit did was set up a good argument, I think, for why looking at spy fiction was important. And that's something that I had worked on with my dissertation. And one thing I really wanted to do with the new museum was, I think too often people just say, well, this is the fiction and this is different from the fact. This is right and this is wrong. This is true. This is accurate. This isn't. I do think it's a much more complicated than that. Fiction sometimes influences facts. People in intelligence fields, they read spy novels, they watch spy movies as well. And I did want to bring some of that in there. So we do cover fiction. I think those things are kind of fascinating where it's more of a sort of interactivity between the, the fact and the fiction and that there isn't this sort of solid wall between what's real and what isn't, but it's more of a porous thing. And I find that very interesting. And I hope that comes across in the new museum. Speaking of walls, you walked us through yes. or around mm -hmm. what had been, I guess it's a fictional representation of the Berlin Wall. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. And you have a little area that shows where the tunnel yeah. existed. Yeah. So I mean, one thing we did during that development period at, at the beginning, uh, first couple of years, was actually take some trips and go visit some other places and other museums. And we did go to Berlin, actually, talked to people in the Stasi archives and visited museums. And we were really taken by that whole experience of Cold War Berlin, the divided city between East and West. And of course, I was born during the Cold War, and I do remember it. But obviously, increasingly, our visitors don't remember that time. And just saying it was the Cold War doesn't really mean that much. So we really wanted people to have that experience of the contrast between the West and East and have that experience of a surveillance state. And one of the things we actually have in our East Berlin exhibit downstairs is a question on the wall as you're leaving that, which is which we're trying to get people to think about surveillance today. Could you live in a surveillance state? Do you live in a surveillance state? People think maybe they live in a surveillance state today because our phones are spying on us or our computers or our refrigerators or whatever it is. But is that something we can tolerate? I want to ask you, before we move into your time as an undergrad and what you studied and all of that, about how technology has change the way museum curators display collections? And does that mean that aspiring curators need to have special training that they didn't used to need to have? Mm. And if so, what? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure about that special training. I would think not, but I think there needs to be an awareness of it. Again, we're all visitors to museums ourselves. And so I think thinking about what we like to do at museums and the way we use our phones, for example, in our daily lives and also with uh, museum experiences, I think there just needs to be this awareness of that. I mean, we're certainly aware of the fact that people like to share their museum experiences with a broader audience. So we are thinking about places where there are great photo opportunities or Instagrammable areas. We are thinking about that. They're just wonderful opportunities that, for example, we are developing a tour for people with disabilities, actually. It's going to be an app which you'll be able to download on your phone. There's just wonderful opportunities that technology offer for people to experience museums in different ways, for people who couldn't experience museums in a certain way to experience it in their way. I think you just have to be aware of that fact. I don't know if it necessarily needs special skills beyond understanding how you interact with technology how you want to bring that to your own visitor's experience. Alexis, what advice do you have for our young listeners who may want to get into this profession and are still in school right now, like Hannah? I don't know if Hannah wants to get into this profession, but she may. How they can best prepare themselves so that they are well-equipped when they start applying for jobs. First of all, you better love museums. <laughs> you really better love museums because that's what it's about. So if I was interviewing somebody for a museum job, I would say, tell me about an exhibit that you've been to and that you loved. Or what museums do you love? And if you say, ah, oh, I don't know, I haven't been to a museum in a while, that's going to be a red flag. People who work here, they really love museums. So I would say, go and visit a lot of museums and see the different types of museums and look at the different types of exhibits and see what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy. Are you a label reader? Are you an interactive person? Learn about yourself and the way you interact with museums and what you enjoy about them. And so what you'd like to bring to them. I think that would probably be the number one thing is just get into museums, experience them. So for those who have already graduated mm. and may have majored in, whether it's history like yeah. you or art or archaeology, why should they consider getting into this line of work? I mean, fundamentally, it's about education. If you enjoy educating people, getting into that, whether it's children or adults. I mean, it's public history. I think that's what it's really about. I was in grad school writing papers and realizing that no one was ever going to read them. And I wasn't thinking about museums at that time. But in some weird way, I guess it kind of makes sense to me. I appreciate bringing history, which I love, to broader audience. I think that's what it's about. And it's about education. We think what we're doing here at the museum is important. I think it's important for our visitors to be educated about the intelligence world and what they do. Many people come here, they're having some fun, pressing some buttons and things like that. But in developing the museum and everything we do today and in the future, we have certain goals. And one of them is to make people better consumers of the news out there and their understanding of intelligence issues. That's really what it is about. It's so that you'll leave this museum and maybe you'll pick up a newspaper tomorrow or listen to the radio or see it on TV and they'll be talking about something intelligence related and you'll have a better understanding of what they're actually talking about. I think that living in a democracy, <laughs> as we do, there's something very interesting about having a part of our government and our national security apparatus that is secret, that we're not supposed to know about. 
and yet takes up a lot of our money. And I think we should know more about it and know more about what they're doing and be able to say, well, are our intelligence agencies doing a good job? Are they doing what we fund them to do? Those are hard questions and very, very difficult for anybody to really answer them. But just asking those questions or thinking about them, I think, is important. And I think that's what the museum is trying to do, get people to think about those things. So working in a museum is about educational goals. So I think if that isn't something that appeals to you or that fires you up in any way, then this may not be the right area for you. But if that's important to you and something you want to do with your life, then think about it. I love a lot of that. And I think what I feel from you as well, sitting here across from you, is just the deep love of the creative process Mm -hmm. and that you are not somebody who's hunkered down behind a computer all day. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of it. Out of that, yes. (laughs) But you're able to think expansively. I think you have to, yes, because we're not doing this for other professionals or intellectuals or whatever, you know, this is for the public. The museum, you open your doors and then the public comes in. And it's kind of a scary thing in a way because you can't control how they're going to respond to something. We talk about this a lot. They need to read this first and then the one and then read this and then read that. And you say, well, that may not be the way it happens. They may not come from the left. They may come from the right. And our visitors are going to do what they want to do in the way they want to do it. And that's that's scary, but you have to think about that and you have to think about presenting information in a way that is going to be accessible to people who are approaching it from that direction and that direction. <laughs> people who are just going to read that one label and nothing else and none of the others, only going to read the big intro, only going to watch the film, who is only going to press the buttons and do the interactives. So they have to think about how can we get our basic message across something that is valuable just through that and then leave it up to them. So when you were in college, you were a European history major. Yeah. And you went to Princeton. Yeah. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree, Alexis, when you graduated? No idea. No idea. And never thought about it. I don't remember worrying about it at all. So what did you do when you graduated and how did you get that first job? Well, I mean, I studied history because I loved history. I think I was just playing it safe, frankly. I was always good at history and I was good at history in school and had great history teachers and that was my thing. And I went to, I grew up in England actually, and one of the reasons why I wanted to go to college in the States was so that I would have more choices in, in Britain when you go to university, often go to study a particular topic. And that would have been history for me. And I wanted to have the opportunity to not study history. I flirted with art history for a little bit, but I ended up studying history. I think it was the safe choice in many ways for me. And I was at a great university, which really had a great history department at that time. And I even played it even safer by doing European history, which is something I knew very well from my studying in school. I never thought about it. I just enjoyed it and I liked it and I was good at it. And that was as far as it really went. I don't think I ever thought about what I was going to do with it. And I just stumbled into a program that Princeton offered that sent people to Asia. I'd gotten very interested in China, actually, during my undergraduate years, just by happenstance. I took a course on Chinese art, actually, just by happenstance. And I thought it was amazing. And I took another course on Chinese literature. And that was great. And I took a course on Chinese history. And that was great. And really just thought it was very interesting. But 
I mean, I hadn't started as a freshman taking Chinese language, right? Could never do that. So I never thought it was anything more than a side interest. And then I think I saw some advertisement about interested in China, want to go study, want to go over to China after you graduate. I said, yeah, okay. Went to the open house and I don't know, somehow applied to a program that sent people over to China to teach English, which was something I could do and got in and that was it. And ended up spending two years teaching English in China, which was just a great adventure. I mean, it was an adventure. Again, I never thought it would go anywhere. I don't know. I never thought beyond actually the first year. And then it just, well, I had a good time and I had a, made a really good friend and she and I were like, let's do it for another year. And that was it. And what'd you do after it? Well, so I came back to the States. My parents had moved back to the States at that time. And I moved to Seattle again, because it seemed like the happening place. And I was going to do U.S. business relations, U.S.-China business relations, which seemed like a thing to do. actually managed to get a job at a place that did U.S.-China relations, actually, and found myself less interested in the business side of things and much more interested in the policy side of things. And after about two years in Seattle, thought it would be interesting to go and study international relations because I thought that sounded very interesting and looked around at international relations programs, mostly master's programs, actually, and found that they were very, at that time, they were very economics and business oriented. And I was looking specifically for programs that were a little bit more on the policy and history and diplomacy side, because that interested me more. And actually saw a couple of PhD programs that did this international history, which I didn't know very much about, that sounded exactly what I was really interested in. And what I love, Alexis, is that it was so arbitrary. It really was. That you ended up getting your PhD at Harvard in history. And after you completed your PhD, Mm. how did you end up getting this position as a professional staff member on the 9-11 commission that would later lead you to working at the Spy Museum. Yes. Well, (laughs) this is why I just don't consider my story to be necessarily a model for anybody because I just stumbled my way through life, I think. But I did go to Harvard and fully thought I would just get my master's degree. I thought this was very clever. I'm going to get my master's degree, get it paid for, and then leave. And in fact, spent most of my first year at the Kennedy School for Public Policy because that's what I was interested in. And of course, because I was at Harvard, you could take courses in all these other different schools there. And I took a bunch of courses at the Kennedy School. And I met a number of professors, including Philip Zelikow, who ended up being the executive director of the 9-11 Commission. So the fact that you knew Philip Zelikow, who later went on to head the 9-11 Commission, that was your pathway to getting that job. Yes, is where I met Bob Zelik, in fact, who my advisor said, this guy is looking for a research assistant. You should do this. I remember telling him, I really don't have time. I'm trying to write my dissertation. He said, you should do this. I ended up doing it. And this is how I got to know him. And he went on to become the president uh, of the World Bank. Yes. I mean, just so I guess this was being in just a wonderful place at Harvard, obviously, with a lot of opportunities, with just people who did turn out to be helpful in many ways. I did plan any of this, but all I could say is just try and always do good work and do your best and impress people and hope it works out. I have two final time for coffee questions, Alexis. Could you share a time in your professional life Mm. when you struggled, 
Maybe you even failed at something. Maybe you really screwed up a big project or whatever it was. You had a terrible supervisor. I myself was fired twice in my 40s. It's something that's taken me a while to speak about it publicly, but I now see it as having been an incredible gift. Mm-hmm. The most important thing is how you persevered and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process. Hmm. I'm not sure if I really have a failure or something like that, but there was a time when I was at the World Bank, another place which frightened the hell out of me because I had no idea what I was doing. Never took an economics class in my life and was suddenly working with senior economists, best from around the world. So that was a scary place, but it was a wonderful place to be. It was an incredible opportunity. And I was at the World Bank kind of not loving things exactly. And this was when I was feeling, yeah, I was telling people, yeah, I just feel like I need to do something more creative. And many of my friends were from the policy world or I guess the development world. And they would say, yeah, and sort of nod their heads like, yeah, that sounds good. But it wasn't until I had lunch with my old friend who'd been my boss at the Spy Museum, who is now my current boss. And we were friends and we'd have lunch periodically. And she said, how's it going? And, you know, I sort of did the same spiel that I would give to all my friends. It's fine. Everything's great. World Bank is a fantastic place to be working, obviously. World-class people, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. But I just feel like, I don't know, I'm not being creative. There's no creativity. And she was the first and only person who said, this is really important. She just said to me, like, this is important. You have to find something that feeds your soul. And it was like this wake up thing for me. Like she understands what I'm talking about. And it wasn't very long after that until she actually was the one who gave me this opportunity. She said, how would you like to come and help me build a spy museum? And I did accept that, but I wasn't quite ready, I think, to completely jump ship and go from this very respectable life, working at the World Bank, where I'd been for a number of years, working for the president. He left, I was there as a contractor there, but a lot of people are dying to break into working at a place like the World Bank. It's a lovely place. I had a lovely office. I, it was a nice place to work. All of it seemed good. You're working with great people. And here I had this opportunity to go work at the Spy Museum, you know, actually shared an office with my boss, you know, she basically put a desk in her office. Not that those things matter, but it makes you think, gee, I have a PhD. Am I really going to work at like this museum? Sounds like a silly museum, doesn't it? From the World Bank. And I spent about a year and a half juggling both of those jobs and driving myself absolutely crazy. I would spend a day where I was at the bank in the morning and then go to a meeting at the museum and then go back to the bank. And I remember because I just, I couldn't let this very respectable place go in this job. It sounded so good. And and then there was a point I actually went on vacation with my family and I realized when I came back, I just couldn't go back to the bank. (laughs) And I did something which I've never done in my life before, which is I acted in a very unprofessional manner. I just didn't go back. I just didn't. I just couldn't go in. You didn't show up. I just didn't show up. I feel very embarrassed about it. My supervisor sort of would call and say, I forgot when were you coming back from vacation? When were you supposed to come back? And that's when I realized I'm ready. I'm ready. And I did go in and say, I'm so sorry. I just can't do this. And I quit from the bank and I came full time in the museum. I've been there ever since. I shouldn't have done that. But it took that for me to realize I'm now ready to do this. And there's something about giving up this sense of something that seemed so professional. And isn't this what you work for? And I could have stayed at the bank probably 
and had a career there or something like that. And instead, I went to something which, again, this was a temporary job. It had an end date. I'm not a museum person. What am I doing? But it took me a while to figure out that that was the right thing to do. So someone I interviewed Mm -hmm. recently said something that really has stuck with me, Alexis, and it is that we need to give ourselves permission to be awesome in ways other than what we thought we should be doing. Yes. And do you think you were clearly struggling with maybe, I don't know what your family would say or what friends would say or what peers would say if you weren't at the bank? Yes, very much so. And I have to say, I still struggle with that. I have to say, I still do because I've had friends who have risen to especially again, living in Washington, D.C. and titles matter and all these things. And I've had friends who became assistant secretaries and are executive directors and have the corner office and all seems great. And I think, gee, should I have tried to do that? Should I have done that? I could have been doing that. I do think about those things. I still do. And I have friends I have lunch with who are at the State Department whatever, and they say, you have the greatest job in the world. And then I think, well, why aren't you doing it then? <laughs> you think it sounds so great because it's always easy to say that. I remember, again, when I went to China after college, and then I got back and I had friends who were working at Goldman Sachs. Sachs, (laughs) You said, oh, wow, I wish I had done that. I thought I was a bit naive. And I would say, well, I can give you the details about how to apply. say it's not that. Yeah, you know, there are lots of opportunities. And then it took me a while to realize that they didn't really mean that. And they, they said, like, in theory, yes, I would like to go off and have an adventure and live in China for two years. But it is actually you know, on my pathway. They'd say, oh, it sounds great. I wish I had done that. But then I would say, well, why don't you then? But you see, I think this says a lot about you. And it goes back to the espresso shots conversation that we had, Alexis, when you said you have been scared in every job you've taken. And I have too. Right. But I think there are plenty of people who aren't comfortable being Mm. scared. They want to be safe. Yes, of course. And that's fine. I mean, that's good. But that doesn't mean that they didn't really mean it when they said that to you. Maybe they are looking at you saying deep down inside, I wish I had the courage to do that. I like thinking of it that way. (laughs) That's the way I look at it. You have the courage to push yourself outside your comfort zone and do things because you are following your heart and your interests right? where it leads you. Well, I think, first of all, I had a lot of support from my family, from my husband. Not everybody is practically able to do those things. I took a big salary cut when I came to museum and I was able to do that because I have a husband who supported me in that. So I think I've been lucky in that sense. It is all that matters. The difference between having a job, which is just a job where you go in and you know you're doing well and financially or whatever, and the difference between having a job where you just have fun and it's a pleasure is enormous. And And you're having fun. Not every day. (laughs) Some of it is. It's hard work. But in general, it's more that you just feel that you're doing something that feeds your soul. I think that's important to strive for that, to find something that, that you just love doing because none of those other things really matter. I do have to keep telling myself that sometimes I do, as I said, look at other people with their great titles and it looks good. I know you're very jealous of me with my chief Java junkie title. (laughs) I am so jealous. I am so jealous. (laughs) I'm thinking of asking for a title change. So final time for coffee question. Mm. If you could go back to college, Mm. back to Princeton and do it 
all over again, Alexis, but based on the wisdom that you have now. Oh my gosh. What advice would you give yourself? Oh, (laughs) I guess just get out of your comfort zone. I wish I'd taken more courses that I knew nothing about. (laughs) Again, I, I think I was rather cautious and I stuck to things that I knew I would be good at probably. And again, I majored in history because that just fell into my path. And I'd say, boy, why didn't I think of doing other things? Explore and get out of your comfort zone and do courses that you think, I have no idea what this is about and I probably won't be able to do it, but I'm going to give it a try. It's a time to take all those risks. So that's what I would say. Just take another language and see how it works out and explore and really take some things that seem like risks, but Now I look back and you realize they really aren't. (laughs) There's not that much can go wrong at that age. Alexis, thank you so much for your honesty, your wisdom, and for the private tour that you gave me and Hannah that I will never forget that I had the lead curator from the International Spy Museum, take me through and show me through her eyes what some of her favorite exhibits are and what you were thinking as you laid this out. I want our young listeners to know that if they want to know more about how to break into this industry, even though Alexis did it in a very unconventional way, to check out the show notes for this episode to see if the Espresso Shots episode has already dropped I love your story, Alexis, and I love the message that you're sending, which is that you never know where your life is going to lead you and build those relationships with professors, with others, because they will take your hand in ways you can't even imagine and lead you down a path that you can't yet see. Thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and Hannah and the rest of the Time for Coffee community. I too look at what you do and say, it sounds so interesting and fascinating and the heck with the World Bank job. (laughs) Thank you. If no one from the World Bank is listening to this, (laughs) what you do is wonderful. Thank you, Andrea. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.